Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. A trigger warning. This episode features graphic description of rectovaginal surgery, as well as discussion of suicidal ideation. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Tina Aswani Omprakash. Tina is a public health advocate and actually a student right now uh, working toward her master's in public health, which is very exciting. And she's also the writer behind the blog Own Your Crohn's, an award-winning blog about living with Crohn's. So Tina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today, Lauren. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Yeah. And actually, I've been following you for a while, and it's such a thrill when I'm following someone and then they reach out to me and we end up having conversations. It's, <laughs> it's always a joy for me. So um, it's very exciting to have you on the show, and I'm excited to talk more about your life and your experiences. And with that in mind, let's start from the very beginning. Can you tell us when you first realized that you had something going on health-wise and what steps you've since taken to get your health under control? Sure. So, you know, I can go back to the very, very beginning. When when I was a child, I had a lot of um, joint pain and eye issues. Like I had pink eyes a lot and um, my ankles and like my wrists were always hurting. And the doctor or the pediatrician would always tell my parents, oh, you know, it's just growing pains. It's fine. She's just got conjunctivitis. Kids get this all the time sort of thing. And, you know, we kind of just let it go for a long time. And I think um, come around 18 or so when I entered college, um, I had gotten um, Lyme disease, mono, all those things. So it was... Oh, my gosh. And I know there's some studies associating inflammatory bowel disease um, with Epstein-Barr virus, with Lyme disease. So, you know, that happened. And then um, I had to take some time off from school. And um, I remember around the age of 1920, when I was studying abroad in England, I started having a lot of 
like um, gastro uh, reflux type issues and a lot of constipation. Mm. Not caused by the British diet. (laughs) Yeah. Not at all. Um, I think it was just a function of, you know, my body starting to um, show me that something was off. And so that's kind of how things got started. And I, I didn't really have health insurance through college, so I didn't really have it checked out. And come um, when I started to work full time, at that point I had health insurance. And I was like, look, this Crohn's disease runs in my family. Um, perhaps I should be a specialist and um, see if this is something that needs to be uh, evaluated um, and uh, if I need to be on medication for it. Because, you know, I had done a lot of research on it. Um, I really wasn't symptomatic as far as um, the traditional symptoms that we see with inflammatory bowel disease, whether it's diarrhea, all sorts of gastro issues, um, uh, you know, vomiting, abdominal pain, uh, lightheadedness, anemia. I hadn't really experienced all that yet. But I was just sort of being proactive um, and also the fact that um, my father has had um, Crohn's disease and it actually took his life um, at the age of 39. So it was that factor that was at the back of my mind because I was eight years old when he died. So sort of growing up, there was sort of this expectation that my sister and I would probably end up with this disease, that it is um, something that sometimes gets passed down. Um, so it, that was heavily weighing on me. So I did go and get it checked out. And that's when I had a colonoscopy done. And I was, I think, 21 at the time. Um, they didn't tell me that I had mild ulcerative colitis at the time. Um, that's what they were calling it. It took me uh, getting the medical records from the hospital where it was done in order to find out. They didn't medicate me, nothing. <laughs> um, so I just don't understand how you can literally have a diagnosis based on I know. criteria and they not tell you. They, they, not just, tell you. they just thought it wasn't severe enough? That's what I asked the doctor when I yeah. came back. So um, I ordered the records um, a few months later because I was like starting to have issues then. And I was like, let me get this. Let me hold on to this. That's like, I just want to highlight that as a first step in taking control yeah. of your health. And that's a really big thing because sometimes it takes a second set of eyes on our labs to actually gain some insight and, you know, sometimes get the proper diagnostic criteria going. And that's exactly what you did. You took control by requesting your, your results. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to be proactive about this in case I needed to switch to another institution. Cause I was working in New York and I did go to a community hospital, a local doctor in New Jersey where I grew up. So that was on my mind as well. And I started to have symptoms a few months later. So at that point I requested the medical records and I'm like, it says I have mild colitis. Um, why didn't he prescribe anything? Why didn't he mention this upon um, colonoscopy? Like, why wasn't this brought up to me? So I was a little bit upset about that. And when I asked the doctor about yeah, it... Yeah, I would be upset too. <laughs> <laughs> Rightfully so. This was 2006, so about 14 years ago. And I asked the doctor, you know, um, why was this not revealed to me? And, um, he's like, it wasn't anything major that I thought needed to have, um, you know, medication or much alteration, but he's like, now that you're presenting with symptoms again, um, perhaps we need to reevaluate. 
it got really bad. Um, I had a flare up and I, at that point that was my first flare up and that was June of 2006. So five months after I had the colonoscopy and, um, I was admitted to the hospital because I nearly fell outside my workplace because I was anemic and dehydrated and just, I felt dizzy. Um, and so I was hospitalized back at that community hospital. Um, my family picked me up and took me straight to the hospital. And from there, he did another colonoscopy. He's like, it looks like it's progressing. And I'm like, looking at him, I'm like, why didn't you progress? Why didn't you prescribe something? So this was really, um, a very upsetting moment for me. Um, and I was like, I clearly need to change care. Um, and I think that's an important thing to highlight as well. Like taking charge of your own care and being proactive about it is so, so important. Finished out that hospital stay. He prescribed medications. I was allergic to one of them. I had hives all over my arms. I was just like, this is not going to work out with this guy. So um, at that point, I started my hunt for a new doctor. And um, I was willing to cross state borders, whatever it took to get proper care, because I knew what this could do in my family. And, uh, you know, I even went to a specialist down in Johns Hopkins that a friend had recommended. And she was like, you know, you definitely have this. There's a question mark if it's Crohn's. Um, and I was like, can you recommend somebody back in New York? And she had given me a couple of names and that's when my journey in New York sort of began with, um, a physician here who I actually really liked and was my doctor for many years. Um, so I just have to say, sometimes it takes time to get the diagnosis. Sometimes it takes time to find the right doctor who you have a good relationship with and who's actually going to take the time to explain your disease to you and take the time to titrate and change your medications should you have allergic reactions or side effects. So um, don't give up. Please keep looking for the right fit for yourself. So I think that's a really important thing that I've learned over the course of years, uh, all these years with Crohn's mm. disease. Um, so that's kind of how my journey started. Um, it was pretty rocky and things were mild. Um, I'd say I was labeled mild ulcerative colitis for the first couple of years till, um, 2008 hit. Um, and then things started to really shift and change for me. Do you think that, I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned 2008, it's a year when a lot happened here in the States too, when this recession started. I, I'm wondering whether that may have been a contributing factor stress-wise on your that's physical a, health too. That's a good question. So, um, I think what happened was, um, 2006, 2007, I was working in banking. Um, so I worked at an investment bank. I think the stress levels were pretty high in general. The banks were doing really well at the time, but that meant I was working anywhere from 12 to 15 hours a day. Um, and during book close, um, during, uh, you know, when earnings season happens for like those three weeks, I might've been working more than that. So obviously my diet, my um, sleep schedule, things were kind of haywire during that time. So yes, I do think that definitely contributed. Um, 2008, I think um, later in 2008, things got bad with the economy. I was already starting to have issues um, in like, I think it was like New Year's Eve um, leading up into 2008. I basically did not go back to work um, at that point because I had gotten so sick. So what had happened was in 2007, late 2007 for my 24th birthday, I'd gone to Cancun. And um, my, my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband, had taken me for my birthday. And I came back with severe viral gastroenteritis. 
Um, I had my PCP prescribing antibiotics at me and um, all sorts of medications at me to treat something viral, which again is a problem. Um, and I took it, I listened to the doctor, I took it. And um, within a couple of months, I developed an infection called C. diff, C. difficile. This uh, is a really dangerous condition to be developing. So the doctors gave you C. diff. More or less. Yeah. And as a result of that C. diff, my disease also worsened, um, which can happen. Um, so at that point, I was hospitalized in January of 2008. Um, I had pulled away from my Wall Street career and uh, spent, I was basically in and out like a revolving door within the hospital for the next um, several years. But um, in 2008, that part began where um, things got pretty serious. My disease sort of rapidly evolved from mild to severe. And by rapid, I mean, um, in January, I was asked to, you know, take all these um, antibiotics to treat the C. diff. And then I was told I need to be put on prednisone, work my way up to 6MP. And then I, I was asked to go on to a biologic. And, wow. and um, that was really, really tough. Well, it's, it's enough that in the midst of this year, you've had to give up your career because you can't even yeah. work. I mean, you're going from, I mean, this is such a fascinating turn of events that I think it's a common thread in the stories that we hear on the show, you know, that we overwork ourselves because yeah. that's kind of the expectation now, if you have a job that you're overworking yourself, no matter what you're doing. And then our bodies give out on us. In your case, it sounds like there was also some potential misdiagnosis, maybe, you know, medical malpractice in there too, which of course can happen, you know, um, and we're going to get into why you're in a very special group for that as well, you know, but, um, it's, it's amazing to me that it takes, you know, this overwork, this expectation culturally that we have, and then Yep. the medical system not serving us. And it sounds like you were bounced around enough that things got so severe that, I mean, this sounds life and death to me. It was life and death. And, and um, it was a really tough time. Not only did I had to, did I have to leave uh, my New York city apartment, move back home to my mom's house, which was 50 some odd miles away from New York city. And, and this is totally dehumanizing. Like it's enough. You've lost your career. Now you're living back at home. And now I'm living back at home and I'm shitting my pants for lack of a better yeah. phrase. Um, and it's, it's really like, it got to the point where I was going to the bathroom 30 to 40 times a day. And it wasn't just from my bottom. Like I was vomiting too. And I was vomiting blood. Like I just, I got so, so sick. And I have to add in a piece here, and I know, I'm sorry for the TMI, but like... No, uh, this is the show for that, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to add in here, like, at this point, I was 24 years old, and I was getting a lot of pressure, um, and this goes into some of the cultural stuff that, you know, I'm South Asian, I'm South Asian American, and um, what had happened during this time was I was getting blamed. Um, you don't eat properly you probably drank too much. You probably um, didn't uh, take care of yourself. Like it was this blame game. Um, and I that was, was coming from doctors and family and friends, like from every direction? Not so much my doctors. They were like, mm. this happens um, at this age. You also have a family history, mm. but it was coming from friends and family and right. extended family. 
oh, she's probably been drinking too much, partying too hard, not eating well, probably eating junk. Um, and it's just like, I'm 24 years old. Like, I, that's what kids do. Like, we, we, uh, you know, we might drink, we might, I, I wouldn't say anything was out of, uh, out of the norm of what normal 24 year olds do. So it was like, yeah. it was like, I was sort of feeling very guilty. Like, did I do this to myself? Um, well, and that's interesting too, because as a woman, you know, all other factors aside, as a woman, you're getting that kind of feedback. Would you have had that same feedback if you, you were male? I highly doubt it. Yeah. And I'll give you, um, like examples down the line, but like, you know, just hearing from men with the disease as an advocate, um, in my culture, they're treated very differently from the women. So, and in this country, you know, as, as a racial, ethnic, cultural minority, we're also treated differently. So I think there's several layers, um, that we have to deal with as, as women of color and different sort of ethnicities, um, that make it very difficult. And at that age, you know, who's taking you seriously when you're a 24 year old woman? Nobody. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard enough to be taken seriously at work and then have that rug pulled out from under you. I mean, who else is taking you seriously? Yeah, exactly. So that this was, this was a turning point for me in the sense like, okay, um, I've just sort of lost my entire life. Um, and I was afraid that my boyfriend was going to leave me because at this time, um, with, with my culture and everything, his family was like, oh my God, what's going on with her? You can't be with her. Yeah. Is she defective? She's defective. She's flawed. And you know, in a lot of cultures around the world, arranged marriage is still a thing. And even if it's a love marriage that you that you do of your own choosing, there's certain criteria that certain boxes that have to be checked off. And being sick is not one of them. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it affects so many things. It affects pregnancy. It affects oh, is this person going to be able bodied enough to take care of you? Which I I completely understand those things. But there is something called companionship, love, and we do also deserve to be loved. Yeah, whether absolutely. We're disabled or abled, what, whatever we are. So mm. that was um, all of this stuff was sort of coming at me at once. I mean, that is so much to deal with. Aside from the fact that also at that age, you're sort of just coming into your own too. So you you were just coming into your own. The rugs pulled out from under you, not just in terms of career, but also with family, with your relationships romantically. I mean, with everything. So it, it is the potential to lose every part of what you had established as your own identity. Absolutely. Like my entire identity was in flux at this time. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like everything just went, it was like an explosion. It's kind of like what we're dealing with with the coronavirus, everything life as I knew it had changed. Mm. Um, and that was really, really a hard thing to digest for lack of a better word. Yeah, I know. The nice (laughs) choice of words there. (laughs) So, so all of this was going on. Yeah. But you had to find a way to get well in all of it. I mean, obviously we know that you did end up married to your then boyfriend. So that seems to have worked out well, but how did you end up where you are now from that point? I mean, this is a huge journey you've been on. Huge. And 
I'll tell you, at that point, I ended up in emergency surgery on the 4th of July in 2008. Um, I had tried all the medications that were available at the time. Plus, culturally, there was a push to try alternative medicine. And by alternative medicine, I mean complementary medicine like Ayurveda, homeopathy, naturopathy, even Chinese herbs I tried. I got so sick that I was 50 pounds lighter than six months before. 50 pounds lighter than what I am now. And I was being fed by um, Total Parenteral Nutrition, TPN. And literally the hair on my head was starting to gray. Um, It was, I was malnourished. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up in emergency surgery and the surgeon told me, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to save you. My family was very much against surgery um, because I would end up with an ostomy bag to start. Um, And that was a huge problem for my family. It's mm. culturally unacceptable to have an ostomy. Even father, if it's life-saving. Even if it's life-saving. Mm-hmm. My father had one. He hated it. He would rip it off in the hospital in a coma. It was so bad that my mother was scarred from it. And she's like, Tina, please, whatever you do, do not get the ostomy. Your father hated it. Well, she I had loved- her own version of medical PTSD. Uh, yes. And I was like, mom, I'm 24. I need to do this. I'm dying. And so it got, there was that family stress too, that I was dealing with. Well, I also wonder like you're growing up sort of between two cultures too, you know, and I wonder if, if you had been completely immersed in one culture over the other, that may have changed your decision too. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, So I completely agree with that statement and I can't tell you, um, had I not been in this country, I don't know what, have, what would have happened. And yeah. I'm very, very fortunate, and I count my lucky stars every day. Yeah. So I, um, I had the surgery done. Um, it was very hard uh, because my mom was my primary caregiver, and she was very much against it. So coming home, it was very much of a struggle um, because she had to help me with ostomy. And so she, had, like you said, she had some serious PTSD with it. But I think that changed over the course of the next several months. And she was just like, oh, my God, you actually like this thing. I was like, Mom, it saved my life. Because she saw and you I, getting better rather than what she'd seen with your dad, which was a progression into his early death. Yes. Mm. She, she did a 180 within a couple of months. And she's like, you know what? This was the right thing. You made the right decision. And I'm happy that you're getting better. So that, that support came back. Um, th- some of that stress levels, they also came down. Um, and I started to bring in my recovery at that point. The thing was, I was going to have a three-step J pouch done. It was done as four steps. I had a lot of abscesses and complications because I was too sick. Um, so I had a four-step J, J pouch surgery done, but even before takedown, um, takedown meaning even before my um, ileostomy, my, uh, my stoma was put back in reversed and my J pouch was connected um, to the rectal cuff and I started to go again. Um, I already developed pouchitis three weeks before that. And so I started talking to the surgeon about that. I was like, can I just keep the ostomy? You know, I'm fine with it. And at this point, my family was like, Tina, no one's going to marry you with an ostomy. And I just kept hearing that. Meanwhile, you're still with your boyfriend through all this. Yes. And his family's like, leave her. Yeah. She's damaged goods. 
leave yeah. her. And he's like, no, I want to marry her. Mm-hmm. I, I've practically been married to her for the last couple of years. There's just no marriage certificate. Like, yeah. how do I just walk out on somebody I love? So it was, um, it was a very trying time. Mm-hmm. Um, I went ahead with the J-Powder surgery uh, with, with the connection. And um, it didn't go well at all. I developed chronic refractory pouchitis from the very beginning. Mm, wow. And I went back to my Wall Street career. Oh, my goodness. So there's an extra added layer of stress there <laughs> that you added on in the midst of all this madness. Okay. So come like May 2009, um, three months after my last surgery, I went back and I went back for a good year. And um, I couldn't do it anymore. I tried going part-time. I tried taking a position that was lighter. Um, the, the, you know, I went back doing 50 hours rather than 75 or whatever. All of it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> and when I asked for part-time, like you're already 50 hours, but you well, know, that's wall like, street part-time, isn't it? <laughs> so that was, um, that was definitely a difficult transition. I did what I could. Um, but it, it just did not work out for me at that time. Um, Anand, um, my then boyfriend proposed, um, in November of 2009 and we got married in July of 2010 and I ended up, um, going out on disability again because I was actually flaring throughout the entire marriage, uh, marriage ceremony, wedding day. It was really, really, really between, um, the wedding planning, going back to work, all the stress of people being like, how is she getting married? Mm. Like, don't get married. And people telling him, you know what, not just his own family, people telling him like, you deserve so much better. Like, and I'm mm. listening to this where he's telling me and I'm like, Oh my God, do you not know what this is doing to me? Yeah. It's um, enough that you already feel that, well, you're already grieving the loss of your able-bodied self, right? You know, and then to have this additional judgment heaped upon you from all directions, that's, yeah, that's going to be stressful and that's going to affect you physically. It's like a vicious cycle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And it makes you feel, honestly, it really takes a toll on your self-worth. It makes you feel worthless and unproductive. So anyway, we did end up getting married. It was very hard because I was put on antibiotics chronically. And during our wedding ceremonies, I was um, flaring and needed all sorts of enemas and suppositories, steroid ones to keep my pouch at bay to get through those few days. And um, my journey got very, very complicated after we got married. Um, Things started to really, really slip uh, in the sense that I developed... um, a fistula into all of this. Are, are you familiar with a fistula? I am, but for those who are tuning in who aren't, can you please give them a little info? Yeah. So what happens is um, ulcerative colitis is mainly a disease of the colon, uh, in, inflammation of the colon. But when you have Crohn's, it can go anywhere from the mouth to the anus. And remember, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, but there was always this question mark as to whether or not I had Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease is a more penetrating disease, um, and you can have all sorts of extra intestinal symptoms, including eye issues, joint issues, skin issues. Um, but another feature of it can be a fistula. Um, so what had happened to me was I developed an abnormal tract. Um, basically, the inflammation got so severe in my J pouch that the mucosal lining broke through 
And there's a tract that formed into my lady parts. The rectovaginal fistula. So wow, and this as a newlywed galore. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and um, it was a very difficult thing um, for me, and I had been put on prednisone again at that time. I put on, um, I believe I put on about forty pounds. So it's like yeah. a really big seesaw, you know, going yeah. from 85 pounds up to 160 all of a sudden. Yeah. Like it was, um, and that it kind was, of rapid weight gain and loss isn't healthy anyway, but this is all as a result of drugs that are attempting to make you healthier. Yeah. Drugs attempting to make you healthier, disease taking toll on you. It's, it was all over the place. So um, I developed my first fistula in 2011 and we had been married a year. We were going to Cleveland Clinic at this point to get second opinions galore um, to figure out how to deal with this. And when I say having a fistula is beyond dehumanizing, it it really is. And it's it makes you not feel like you're a woman anymore. Um, because well, especially in the way that you, you developed it, you know, in that it affected your sex life as someone who was recently married. Like, I mean, this is the one area of pleasure in your body is suddenly transformed. It's gone. Yeah. Um, and it was hard enough anyway with all the surgeries that I had. Um, it was complex with the J pouch. You know, all these things can affect um, uh, both a man and woman's sex life in general. So um, having a fistula only complicated that. And um, not only that, there's mucus, there's stool, there's pus coming through, and it's just that's not the way things are supposed to be. Um, so this was, I was 28 years old and it was probably the most harrowing thing that could have happened to me at that age. So, um, I had, uh, multiple surgeries to try to correct it. Um, eventually they just ended up putting a seat on, leaving it open because the surgeries couldn't, couldn't do justice to it. Couldn't close it. Um, they tried something else. Um, they tried to disconnect my J pouch to allow time for the fistula to heal. So what they did is they gave me a temporary ostomy again to rest the bowel um, that was closer to my rectal cough. And it's also, I mean, this is like, even having an ostomy while it can be life-saving is these are very invasive surgeries, you know, that you're going under time and time again, you know, cutting into your abdomen to have the, the ileostomy come through, you know, like all of this kind of stuff, it also takes time to heal. Like this is a pretty quick turnaround. And I imagine challenged your body to heal very quickly. It really did. I mean, they even um, scraped the rectal cough because I was having something called cuffitis, which is inflammation of that little portion of the rectum that was left. Like the the number of surgeries, I I can't like, I've had over 20. Um, at some point you just kind of lose count because you're constantly going under. Um, so this was, this was really difficult dealing with the fistula. And then at that point that, um, giving me the temporary ileostomy, we tried that. We tried enemas with that. Like it was just something that was compounded for me. Didn't work. I had, um, I developed another fistula and at that point they decided another rectovaginal fistula. That point, my doctors decided, look, Tina, we got to restart you on biologics. Um, didn't work. We tried that for four months. And it's an arduous process to try new medications. 
and keep failing them. Because it takes time for your body to adjust onto these biologics in particular, right? And you have to get on like a very strict schedule with them over time. So as you like this four months with Humera, like you need at least four months to know whether it's even working. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the thing. And um, so you have to give that amount of time um, and be patient and also put your life on hold during that time. So I wasn't working during this entire time. My mom was taking care of me even though I was married. Um, so it was a very tricky time and my husband was working a lot of hours to make sure we had insurance and he could afford my care. So it was, it was very, very difficult, but I started biologics and I developed anaphylactic shock to that and nothing's working. Mm -hmm. I have whole body arthritis. I have skin nodules all over my legs. Some of them are necrotic. It's called erythema nodosum. And then I had pyoderma gangrenosum. I've also had sweet syndrome, hydradenitis superativa all over my legs. Um, And it was just, it was so like mind numbing because I was like, what is going on with my body? Like this, this disease is just like completely taking over my body. From the inside out. And now you're having visual, like you're seeing it on your legs and stuff. Like this is now not something that's just happening inside too. Exactly. It was just attacking anything and everything it could find on my body, literally. Developed two more fistulas in the next few months. Four rectovaginal fistulas. Wow. <laughs> I went into my surgeon's office and I was like, you need to take me into surgery now and get rid of my J pouch. I cannot do this anymore. Six years is too much. So now we're at December, 2014. And he took me in the next day for emergency Mm -hmm. surgery to remove my J pouch. And, um, I thought, I thought, you know, now things are over. I can really begin my healing journey. Mm -hmm. Nope. Mm. Nope. <laughs> wow. Not quite that simple. Um, the surgery was botched, mind you. <gasps> this was someone who had saved my life in 2008. <laughs> so, do, was it botched? Like, was that something that it was sort of it can happen, or was it something that was like a malpractice issue? I'm pretty sure it was a malpractice issue. I, I, this oh. is a very complex surgery. I think it's very, very hard. I went to Cleveland Clinic to get a second opinion because I was left with a chronic rectal wound um, three months later. And I was like, why is this thing not closing? And I'm yeah. bleeding constantly. So um, I go to Cleveland Clinic and the surgeon and the GI there that I was seeing um, both said there were bits and pieces of re- J pouch and rectum left behind. Oh my God. And at that point they were like, I remember they admitted me because uh, they were like, you know, your MRI results um, are showing that it's far more complex than that. The pieces of J pouch rectum that look like they've been left behind have created an abscess and it was giant where the J pouch once was. And um, it's basically like a honeycomb and we're not going to be able to break through it break through all of that. We're going to have to go in, re-excise everything. And we're probably going to have to take a flap from your leg to close that wound. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, I thought it was done. <laughs> and also at this point, if you're dealing with malpractice, were you like, I need to sue this doctor? Like, exactly. Which but, is an additional stress. But he had saved my life. Yeah. 
So I was just like, I can't do that. He's done so much for me over the years. Um, and he was, he's such a good man. Um, I toyed with the idea for a long time, but I decided not to pursue it. Mm. And um, I went ahead with focusing on correcting this and healing. Mm. So um, at that point in time, um, I was not really okay with what the Cleveland Clinic was suggesting. And I was like, I need to do my own research. There wasn't really much research on this because it was kind of an out of the box sort of problem. A bit extraordinary. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And what they had told me was that this abscess had a fistula coming out from it and it was heading for my spine. Um, So you would have been completely, you'd been quadriplegic at that point, probably. Yeah. They were like, it it could paralyze you. We're not sure what this can do. Um, So they're like, you need to act. And I was like, okay. They um, gave me a pick line again um, to not only feed me, but also to um, give deliver antibiotics because I was considered septic. Um, I had sepsis. Uh, So this is another life and death times two. Exactly. Um, it's happened a few times, unfortunately, but, um, at that point I, uh, got an appointment at the Mayo Clinic to see their head and I, we flew out there. I was on, um, antibiotics for a couple months until I could get over there. And, um, I knew I needed to act fast. So I go over there they're looking through everything. Let me just say the fellow who sat down with me the first time, um, was like, you look great. And I'm like, God. At the Mayo Clinic of all places. I'm coming to you because there's something mysterious going on. Wow. I like, look at him like, really? <laughs> he, and he, he's got the stack of papers in front of him with my like medical records from God knows how many years. He's like, I know you're really sick, but I just have to say this. And I was like, oh. it's just so short sighted, isn't it? It really is. But then mm-hmm. he, after hearing my case, he brings the doctor in who sat down with me for like three hours. And then he's like, I'm going to need a minute. Um, I think we need to bring colorectal surgery in. I'm like, okay. And 20 minutes later, he comes back with the colorectal surgeon. I was, the doctor was fantastic between the GI and the surgeon. I mean, world-class really. He spent a while with me reviewing everything and he's like, I'm going to take you in for surgery tomorrow morning. And I was like, what? And I knew things would be kind of all over the place. Um, Cleveland and Mayo have an interesting way of doing things that I think is extremely well managed. It's almost like an assembly line. Um, And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I actually think it's, it's very, very effective and productive how they do this. So when you call up to make an appointment, they will set up whatever they think you might need and ask you to stay for an extra day or two in case they need to add things on. So, um, and they sort of structure your appointments. There's these coordinators that structure your appointments, um, you know, CGI at this time, get labs at this time, go here. Like they give you a map, they give you like a whole like schedule that gets mailed to you and emailed to you. It's a really very well-coordinated, well-oiled machine, <laughs> so to speak. So um, I was just like, wait, I was 
gonna go home in a couple of days. I can't go in for surgery. And they're like, well, you're gonna need to change your flight. Um, so, uh, they took me in for surgery the next morning. And actually, my mom and husband were there with me because they were very worried about what was going on with me. So this was July of 2015. Mind you, the botched surgery happened in December 2014. So seven months in between. And they were like, we can't wait. We need to deal with this abscess right now. So, um, the surgeon takes me in and it was an outpatient procedure. I wake up and medical PTSD hits hard because I wow. see, I see this grenade shaped thing coming out of my body, coming out of my bottom. And I couldn't feel anything because I lots of painkillers and God knows what else. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm, I'm screaming, asking for the nurse <laughs> And I'm like, what, what, what happened? Why do I have this thing? It was a drain. It's called, um, a JP drain, a Jackson Pratt drain. And I have had multiple, uh, drains throughout all of my entire experiences with all the abscesses I've had. They leave drains coming out of my bottom. It's awful. You literally have something hanging out of you. Um, or you have a drain down your leg that has like a bag that things are emptying into. So like, it's that kind of stuff, um, having these drains, mm. it's like an additional appendage on top of having an ostomy and a pick line in your arm. So I'm like, what, 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 what am I like some kind of circus animal here? <laughs> like, you know, like it's even dehumanizing for- and you don't recognize your body. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the nurse was like, the doctor will speak to you. You are in the recovery room right now. We are going to take you back to your room so that you can talk to the doctor. Um, before he discharges you. So, um, and I'm just like literally freaking out because that's not the plan that we discussed. What we had discussed was he's going to, uh, attempt to re-excise, um, the first time, see what's going on in there and how much of it he can take out. Um, and it turned out to be completely different. So I get back to the room a couple hours later, he comes in and I'm nervous as all heck. And I'm telling my husband and my mom how nervous I am. And he's like, Tina, we couldn't go through the bottom. Like I said, we would, it was too scarred. He's like, so I created another opening and I'm like, what? And mind you, I'm on painkiller. So I have no idea. He's like, we went through the side of your bottom. So he's like, I, I made another little opening into the fat tissue And he's like, I left a drain there because this is worse than we thought. He's like, this abscess, I want it to drain for some time. Um, maybe three, three and a half weeks or so, maybe four weeks. And I want you to come back. And I was like, why? And he's like, I wasn't able to finish this and I need you to come back. I will have to open that side of the bottom wound up, go in there, re-excise everything three more times. It's a mess. This yeah. thing's gonna flop around. Like I, I'm, like I, I don't have enough appendages that I have to deal with. Yeah. And how do you sleep at night? Like I've done this so many times where I've had drains, um, pick lines in my arms, dealing with an ostomy. Like which way do you sleep? Like it's these are people don't think about these things. So um, he was just like, you know what, Tina, we're gonna have to get through this. Um, so as if that wasn't bad enough, then the kicker was, and he told me that you're going to have to inject hydrogen peroxide into the drain. And I said, 
wait, 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 into the drain or into where? Yeah. It's going to go into your pelvic cavity. Oh my God. This is just to keep it all clean for the next three weeks. To debride the abscess. Oh my God. Yeah. And also like if you didn't have a partner or like a caregiver around at this point, like how could you reach around to do that kind of follow-up care? I mean, this is, but then it's also like asking someone to do that for you. Hi, can you please inject this hydrogen peroxide in the side of my butt basically, which is like, that's not an easy thing to ask of anyone. No, and I appreciate you recognize that, right? Recognizing that because very, very few people understand how much of a toll this took on me because I had to ask my husband to do it in the beginning. And like, that's not sexy. You've already had the fistulas that you've had to deal with. Yeah. I mean, God bless this man. He sounds like he's wonderful and he has stuck by you. Yeah. It's also, this is what he signed up for, but also like, this is not the kind of thing that anyone wants to have to ask anyone in their lives. This is not a pleasant experience. Not, not at all. And, um, so I was like, okay, I remember that night in the hotel pulling out all the supplies that Mayo Clinic had given me. Um, and I sat in the bathtub and I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried. And my husband came in and he's like, Tina, what's going on? I was like, I I can't do this to myself. This is, I've, I've been asked to do some pretty crazy things to myself over the years with this disease, but I, I, I can't. And he cried with me because it's been so hard for him hearing that, you know, things would be fine every step, step along the way. You know, when I got the J pouch done, this would be the end of the rope. When I had the J pouch removed, this will be it. Or even when I had it disconnected before that, this is it. Like every single time that we thought this was over, it was not over. Um, and I think and it's also this complete lack of control or understanding of your body that like, here's someone who like culturally, you know, as a woman living in this world is already sort of not in control of how anyone sees her body. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you have no control over your own bodily functions anymore. No, none whatsoever. And your body's killing you. It, it literally is. It's like, virulently attacking me. And I'm like, I've done everything right all this time. I've, my diet's been good. I'm taking all my meds. Why is this keep happening to me? I I follow all my doctor's instructions. It's not like I've been, you know, a renegade about any of this. So it just, it was very, very frustrating. And he ended up doing it, um, injecting the hydrogen peroxide. I still remember it was 10 cc's. So one injection full. It's a lot, you know, to put into your pelvic cavity. And I remember screaming um, at the top of my lungs and so it really hurt. Yeah. I mean, imagine like you have a cut, you know, you put hydrogen peroxide on it and it stings, doesn't it? But this is like inside too. So this is and, even more sensitive. And this is not just a cotton swab of hydrogen peroxide. It's 10 milliliters. You know, <laughs> So the idea was to help debride it, um, sort of scar it over so that he could pull the abscess out and clean that entire area out. 
and it was effective. I'm not going to lie. It, it worked. But over the course of those three and a half weeks, I became suicidal. Um, my mom did. I really appreciate you being open about that because I think this is something that like doesn't come up enough is how, when our bodies betray us, what it does to us psychologically. And it requires this level of honesty with being like, I'm done. I'm done with my body. I'm done with this life. You know, Um, I I was so done. Um, Yeah. My mom has never picked up the phone and called my doctor the way that she took such an initiative that day when I told her, mom, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to kill myself. Um, she picked up the phone. Like I've always handled all my care. You know, I've sort of even being on narcotics or whatever in a hospital bed, I've sort of handled all my care. My mom and husband have been great caregivers, but I've managed my care through and through my insurance, through and through everything through and through. Um, understanding my disease, all of that. I've sort of handled it head on. But at this point in time, she picked up the phone and she said, you got to get her in for surgery, like right now. And um, they pushed up my surgery a little bit by a few days because I was already at the point where um, I was supposed to go back like the following week or something. They pushed up my surgery and they took me in uh, right away. And that hydrogen during that whole time you stayed in minnesota too like you stayed back you went home drain and i was back out lopsided because there was a drain in the side of my bottom oh my god so um we flew back to minnesota again um and this was now august of 2015 and um they told me okay we're gonna go back in three more times to clean all of this out and i said okay and we're going to attach a wound vac, um, use a vacuum instead of taking a flap from your leg to try to close this. It's a longer process. But what I was concerned about the flap that Cleveland had offered me was, is my Crohn's going to attack that flap too? create fistulas there too? So my experience was like, no, 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 we got to try to close this some other way. Um, so what Mayo had offered me made a lot of sense. So when I went back, um, they did re-excise and they did put a wound back in. But before they put a wound back back in, they dipped me in a salt water pool. And this was after they had opened up that small hole that they had created. And it was the size of a small football. This sounds so painful. It was um, traumatic. <laughs> you know, it was extremely painful. I've never been on this many painkillers in my life. I was on six yeah. narcotics. Yeah. Um, joking. Like I was having full fledged nightmares, um, at night, um, because of how many painkillers I was on. Like I was hallucinating. Like it was, it was really bad, but what they hadn't told me in advance, because I don't think they realized this is how long I would need to stay in the hospital. Okay, guys, let's talk life on the road with chronic illness. Marin, a type one diabetic developed my sugar case after being approached about her ugly nylon swag bag. If she was going to talk about living with an invisible illness, she figured she'd better make it fashion. Several awards later, My Sugar Case designs and produces diabetes supply bags. But here's the awesome news. They're adjustable and can accommodate a whole lot more than just insulin and glucose monitors. Think all those meds you carry around no matter what you've got going on. A unique and innovative solution that empowers individuals living with chronic conditions to eliminate the uncertainty about storage, public image, and the transport conditions of their medications. 
My Sugar Case helps patients turn sickness into strength. Use code MSC10MSC for 10% off yours at Amazon.com. Because it was on the side of my bottom, it was very hard for me to sit or function. They actually wanted to discharge me, um, and we had rented an apartment for a month in Minnesota, um, and we thought we would just stay there, and I would have a wound vac sort of and home health care to deal with. What they didn't realize and I didn't realize is how much pain this would be and the fact that I couldn't be discharged because of that pain. Wow. So every other day in my room under sedation, they would um, clean out the wound and replace that wound back. They tried to do it without sedation. I remember screaming at the top of my lungs. And again, my mom got up and this is not something my mother would ever do. And she said, sedate her right now. Like, you know, I still, I was awake. I was in so much pain. And I still remember my mom saying, you sedate her right now. Yeah. Like, I, I will not tolerate this. Because they were trying so hard to have me deal with this and get out of the hospital. Right. I needed my mom to say that in that moment. Yeah. So she really stepped up for you. She was like, she needs to stay here. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not going to work for us. And that was it for them. They were like, she's going to be here until we can pull that back out. Mm -hmm. So I was there for about, I think, five weeks. Wow. A week, something like that. And then the wound was about three inches deep and they pulled it out. But like I said, my journey never ends. So... A couple days before I was discharged, I started having um, symptoms of fistula again. Oh, no. (laughs) So I requested that they do an MRI before I am discharged. And um, lo and behold, they found a hole in my vaginal wall. Um, it was really bad and they discharged me and they were like, you need to talk to GI about this because this is something that has to be managed outpatient. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, why do I have a hole? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Um, anyway, so I speak to my GI and he's like, look, I've seen this twice before where the organs might be pulled out, the colon, the rectum, the J pouch, whatever's now gone. But, um, it's like this phantom sort of thing that's still attacking that area. He's like, I'm sorry, but like, I think we were not planning to put you back on biologics, but I think we're going to have to. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) He put me, I don't know how he did this, but he put me in a clinical trial because there were no other options. I started Stellara in September of 2015, coordinated the care with, my doctor here in New York at the time, because they knew each other. And um, he got me into this trial and I was followed very closely for the next few months. Um, And after that point, it was a very arduous recovery. And did you have an ostomy at this point too? The whole time. Right. Okay. I live with a permanent ostomy. They didn't touch um, they just kept going through the side of the bottom or trying to go through the bottom type thing. The ostomy being on my abdomen, just, they didn't, they were like, we're not touching that. Right. So you were uh, still able to 
you know, for better or for worse, you were still able to like get stuff out of your body as it were. Yeah. Um, I started to develop other issues with severe constipation at the time, um, between all the narcotics I was on. Um, and I think it was the beginnings of a new diagnosis. Uh, I have gastroparesis. So how does it work when you have gastroparesis and Crohn's disease? I mean, this is like two opposite ends of the spectrum almost, but it's just like, it's like, what's the point of having any kind of like gastric system full stop at this? Like, what do you do? It's been such a nightmare the last few years. Yeah. So, I mean, I finished up like sort of that course of, or phase of my life in the sense like my disease went into remission. My Crohn's disease went into remission in early 2016. But in late 2015, I started having this severe constipation and I was tested for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, I was told I had IBS-C now and, and went from D to C now, <laughs> like, you know, and, um, at that point they were like, oh, we're just going to change up your diet and stuff. And I was like, okay. I and also like to be even diagnosed with IBS in the midst of this, it's like, that's such a, in my opinion, and from what I've heard from people I've spoken to on the show, like IBS is this catch all thing. Like there's something wrong with your stomach and or bowels and we can't quite figure it out, but it's not severe enough to be Crohn's or ulcerative colitis and it's not gastroparesis. It's just this weird in-betweeny thing. Gray area. So they're like IBS because also that, but also you're not pooping, but you can only poop through your ostomy. Like what, how, I don't even understand. I, I could not wrap my head around it, but my bowels just kept slowing down over the years. I spent like a good chunk of 2016 and 17 eating salads and I could never do that. So it was like, okay, this is working for now. Soups and salads. It's working. My plumbing sort of working. And then, you know, I started having to take some Miralax here and there. I started complaining to my GI doctor. Um, my GI had left. So I had new GI doctor. I started complaining to her you know, like, this is not getting better. And she's like, let's add some Miralax in. I want you to see a motility specialist. Um, this was just last year, you know, so this has been really going on for a while now since late 2015. So just last year, she finally said, we need to get you in to see a motility specialist. So yeah, God, it took four in. years. The, the thing that's like striking me about your story so far is like the way in which, whether it's as a woman of color, whether it's as a woman, whether, you know, whatever layer we're at in terms of the way that you're being perceived by the the systems around you, like you are being systematically brushed aside. Absolutely. Not treated as an emergency Absolutely. and then becoming an emergency because you've been previously ignored. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. So, you know, that doctor definitely brushed me aside um, for a few years. And it was so frustrating. I'm like, Amiralax isn't cutting it anymore. We need to do something else. And then I did this whole round with motility specialists in New York. And I went through three of them. And um, I even went back to Mayo last June because my GI there, my IBD specialist there was like, come back. I'm like, I, like, I'm supposed to be pooping six to eight times a day with my ostomy. I'm lucky if I get once a day and I was putting on all this weight. Yeah. Cause it's all bloat and it's all shit in, stuck in your body. Exactly. And so, which by the way is also like, this is like excrement is 
waste for a reason. Like that kind of thing stays in your body. You're going to get sick because it's toxins being reabsorbed by your organs. Exactly. So, and I think it became an emergency. I really do. And when I went back in June, finally, um, my doctor at Mayo Clinic was, he really had to push for me. And, you know, I love him because he's such an amazing man. But the motility specialist there did not take me seriously at Mayo Clinic. He's just like, you probably have to And I'm like, he's like, you don't need to have this test that, you know, your IBD specialist. Do the fucking test. I don't care who you are. And I was like, he's like, it's a really awful test. And I was like, I don't care. I had really awful things done to me. Please just do it. So I went back and I called the other IBD, the IBD specialist. And I was like, can you please push him to do this test on me tomorrow? Because I am staying anyway. And because I need a definitive diagnosis, I came all the way here. And he's like, yes. In the meantime, that evening, I started to throw up big time. I ended up in the ER. They did a CAT scan. They found inflammation in the last 12 centimeters of my small bowel. I'm like, what? I've been in remission all this time. And my IBD specialist is like, Tina, I don't know that this is Crohn's. Like, he's like, we need to have that test done. And it's an um, antral manometry that gets done. And what it is, is um, it's basically a small bowel manometry and it's measuring the pressure, the contractions of the small intestine to see why there's a motility dysfunction. So um, at which points it's slowing down. So it was an eight and a half hour study and they barely put me out to put tubes down into my stomach and small intestine. It's Which is part- also like, why aren't you putting people on a general anesthesia for things like that when well, you do it's it? It's going to slow things down too much. They're like, it's going to slow things down too much. And I'm but like, also, it's also going to hurt like hell. I mean, no, how do you? No, I know. So I'm so frustrated for you. I want to shout at all these doctors who've done you wrong. <laughs> it's It's been very difficult. So they put 15 sensors inside me. Um, they made me eat at certain intervals. They watched me. I get the diagnosis. I have um, antral uh, gastroparesis, meaning at the bottom of the stomach. Um, and when I came back, I spoke to my IBD specialist at Mayo, and he was like, I'm not 100% convinced that this is Crohn's. I feel like you have so much constipation that it might have actually set off some form of inflammation in your bowel because your whole, your ileoscopy, the, the scope that he had done earlier in the week looked clean. And he's like, I can't say for certain, but I don't necessarily want to up your medication for Crohn's. My doctor here though, in New York was disagreeing. She's like, we cannot take any chances with you given how severe your case has been. We're reinducing you on Stellara as part of a clinical trial again. They admitted me in the hospital. They reinduced me on the Stellara and they upped my interval from eight weeks to four weeks for my Stellara. And my Mayo Clinic doctor was like, I don't agree with that, but I know you have to be managed in New York. So we're going to, you know, take it one day at a time. In the meantime, he got me in, he wanted me to see um, a specific motility specialist um, who I did see and she, um, was fantastic. And so she's been working with me for almost a year now. 
um, in terms of getting my motility under control, my gastroparesis is a little bit better controlled. I can't say that it's all that well controlled right now, even, and I'm on a lot of meds. So I've had to alter my diet completely. I'm no more raw, no more salads. It's mostly, um, soup. So I make a lot of soups in the instant pot. Um, that's kind of what's been advised. I do a lot of smoothies. I do eat some solid foods. I'll try to eat like tofu and stuff. I'm vegetarian. Um, uh, so I, I do have proper nutrition, but I've just noticed, especially with, um, you know, being stuck at home recently, uh, I have put on a lot of weight in the sense that I don't think things are moving that well because I'm not able to get enough exercise in. And because exercise is, seems to be key for me right now, um, you know, and has been to get things to move, um, so that's, it's been very, very difficult for me. Um, I also had, you're not, the journey's not done is the bottom line here. Like we still don't exactly know what the final answer is going to be. We don't. And I'll be really honest with you. After I came back from Mayo, I was very disgruntled with my doctor, my GI doctor here and, um, in New York. And, um, my husband was very upset because they were just trying to escalate my biologics we weren't even sure if this was Crohn's or not. I did listen to her, but I got another opinion at Mount Sinai. So I went to another hospital system and I actually ended up switching my care. So this doctor was like, I don't agree at all. I agree with Mayo. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'll leave you on Stellar every four weeks for now. In December, he scoped me. He did an MR enterography in November and he's like, Tina, there's no inflammation. I'm de-escalating you to six weeks instead of four. And he's like, we can consider eight weeks down the line. But he's like, I don't believe this was Crohn's. I believe that you had severe inflammation that had started to act up because you were so backed up. But how do they fix that though? That's the other um, side of it. With promotility medication. So I started True Lance in June. I started Domperidone, which is um, not approved in the United States. My uh, motility specialist got it from, from Canada. Um, and in February, she started me on Motegrity, which is... So you're on three different drugs for this. To go to the bathroom. Wow. And it's still not good. It's still not perfect. Um, granted, I think being indoors has complicated things. I'm usually pretty active. I try to go to the gym to do a lot of exercises. I go for acupuncture and pelvic floor physical therapy to help these manage these things, which hasn't been possible during, you know, the, this pandemic. So, um, plus I had a major ankle injury in the winter. So things have kind of been bad the last six months in terms of my motility because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that and you I've- can't just do any home exercise either. It's like your body has so much stuff going on. You've got to be very selective Exactly. Being physically active. So it's hard to change that up when you're someone who already has limited options. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So it's, it's definitely been a journey. I have multiple diagnoses. Yes. I have Crohn's and gastroparesis and all this functional GI stuff going on, but I also have like just a whole body, like mess of diseases. And it's, I feel like it's always been a balancing act for me to sort of juggle one chronic illness against the next, you know? So it's, it's been hard, but I think one of the ways that I cope is by doing advocacy work. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the people who've been advocates for you as well. Cause the, the two people who've come up in a recurring theme in this story are your mom and your husband. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we've talked a little bit, we've touched on how these experiences have affected your relationship with both of them. But given everything that you've experienced now, now that we're in 2020 and in the midst of this pandemic, your relationships with them and how your conditions have affected those relationships. So my husband and I are obviously stuck indoors together in a tiny Manhattan apartment. Um, You know, I think I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways, but especially in this one way that he and I get along really well. And I mean, yes, we've had tiffs and stuff over the last seven weeks that we've been stuck indoors together. Um, But I think any normal couple would, but in general, I think things are going well. I think he um, can struggle sometimes to advocate for me, but he has always been sort of my rock in the sense that he's always been there. Um, He doesn't believe in leaving somebody um, just because they have an illness. And I think that's, it makes me believe in humanity again to see that. Um, He has stood up uh, for me uh, against our culture, against a lot of people who've said otherwise. And I know it's been He's probably, he's had more naysayers than your typical person would. I mean, because as you're saying, it's not just the friends here and whatever, but it's also these, the cultural mores of your family. Exactly. And I think um, it's been really hard for him to stand up oftentimes. And I think he has to do it so often um, in terms of keeping this wall up around me that uh, that is his sort of advocacy. You know what I mean? Um, Is being that piece of the puzzle and keeping people out and away from causing arguments between us and causing unnecessary fights and, you know, when we otherwise get along. I'd say that's been the biggest problem in our relationship is people saying he shouldn't be with me. Um, and we've argued over it many times. And, um, but it, it, you know, at the end of the day, he knows what the right thing is. And he knows that should something like this, God forbid had ever happened to him, he wouldn't want anybody doing this to him. So, you know, and he's always said that to me. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate because this has not been an easy journey by any means. No. No, not not at all. What about your relationship with your mom? So my mom has always been a rock for me. I think it's been very, very difficult for us to not see each other during this time um, because she does live 50, 55 miles away. So that's been very difficult. I think we've been trying to keep up uh, via fight FaceTime um, as much as we can but she's also a caregiver um, to my grandparents. So that's... She's got a lot on her plate as it is. Are they living with her too? Wow. And my stepdad's also, you know, part of the picture. So she's got her plate full, so to speak. So over the last couple of years, I've tried to become more independent to give her that space because I've been able to. Um, as my disease went into remission or in and out of remission, whatever you want to call it, um, I've sort of picked up and picked up that slack and really taken care of myself through the gastroparesis diagnosis and through everything else I've been through these last few years. So she's Mm -hmm. definitely still very much, um, a part of my life. Um, but I think it's, it's more that especially now during the pandemic, we sort of have to keep that distance, unfortunately. Absolutely. But it doesn't change the fact that she's obviously concerned about you and is clearly keeping in touch with you too. Of course. I get emails constantly about, 
oh, do this to prevent the coronavirus. I'm like, mom, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one thing, like, when you're a chronic illness patient, at least we have a little bit more know-how in terms of, like, you know, protecting ourselves at home or being stuck at home or, you know, disinfecting areas that we live in. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. So I just... No, it's very cute. You can tell that she cares in, the, in that kind of regard. And I do get a lot of messages in that sort of sense. But yeah, it's, it's, that dynamic has definitely changed and I've taken more charge of my care the last mm-hmm. few. Yeah, you've really become, I mean, you've been your own advocate throughout this process, but you've had to step up a little more in the last few months, it sounds like. And what's a typical day looking like for you? Because we still don't have clear diagnoses in, in every direction. And, I mean, I know you're right now studying for a master's in public health. I mean, balancing your work and your life and living around your symptoms and your diet and lifestyle management, what does that look like for you day to day right now? That's a great question. I think um, I think my routine has definitely changed. I mean, I'm really lucky that I don't, you know, um, that I'm not like revolving around the hospital system in the sense that I'm not constantly in and out anymore but I do have a lot of appointments and that's been my reality ever since I came back from Mayo Clinic um, is in order to maintain my health I have a lot of specialists um, managing a variety of different uh, illnesses and uh, issues that I face on a regular basis and that's been unusually tough during this time because we have to use telehealth which I think is amazing on some levels but not so great on others so um, my life has changed in the sense that I would definitely, um, I would have probably one doctor's appointment a day. I usually have five to seven a week. Because um, when I say doctor's appointments, I also mean like acupuncture and public floor physical therapy. Those seem to be staples in my life right Maintenance now. Maintenance activities. Yeah, because they help on so many levels with um, multiple issues. So, uh, cause I have pelvic floor dysfunction from all the surgeries I've had and all this constipation. Fair enough. So, um, there's that and acupuncture seems to help with the motility, but it also helps with allergies and migraines and sinus issues and all of that. So I think, um, those were really staples in my life before this pandemic started, but then I might have a bone density scan or I might have to follow up with my rheumatologist or, guess what? Now I have a herniated disc. I need to go see my neurologist and have an MRI. So it's, it's constant management of something. Well, and that's what I, I'm curious about too, because right now, you know, you're not going to any of these doctor's appointments. You're doing telehealth appointments. Do you think you could end up, I don't want to catastrophize here, but could you end up in another situation where you're not treated like an emergency and you become an emergency again? 100%. So you're really having to be hyper vigilant right now that if anything feels a little funky, you're going to have to go in and you're going to have to push for it too. 100%. So I'll give you an example. I actually did go for a pelvic floor physical therapy and um, for neck physical therapy today, um, this morning. And it was the first time in over a month. And the reason why was because I was afraid I would end up in the ER. And I was like, I'd rather go into an office that has nobody in it, <laughs> where the employee's been furloughed, and it's just coming in to see me, um, to, to do physical therapy on me. And so that's what I did. And, and this it, is why maintenance is so important and like knowing what you need. This is your version of self-care. Exactly. Yeah. And I had to push for it because I was starting to have pretty severe pelvic pain in the last couple of days. And on top of that, my neck was feeling out of whack. And 
she said it today. She's like, Tina, I'm glad you came in. Your neck's feeling really leathery. I'm doing all the home exercises that she's given me. I'm on top of all of that. But there's only so much you can manage from home that doesn't need manual intervention. So I really do feel like during this time, there's going to be a lot of illness that props up that becomes emergencies potentially later on down the line because people aren't getting the care that they need early on. Well, because we're already, we're only doing acute care right now and we're already not good at doing prevention, are we? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Clearly. (laughs) But I mean, that's a lesson you've had to learn by being sick as well. I mean, this is one of those, like psychologically how we get our heads around this, right? Is that like, you've had to buck the system in the sense that you've had to be like, no, I need this prevention. I need to prevent now. Like you've been through that to understand it, but your average person over here who might be coming down with the first symptoms of Crohn's might not know that yet. Nope. Nope. And that's the thing. Like I, I know how I have to take care of my body now because, and I, I'm very proactive. I'm very much on top of it, but even then, you know, there's always a pipe that's bursting somewhere, <laughs> you know, that's, that's how I refer to it because you can fix a leak, but then the leak's going to pop up somewhere else. That's how it is with chronic illness. Absolutely. So trying to do the best I can because I'd rather go into an empty physical therapy office than end up in the ER this yeah. weekend this week. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's all about sort of taking care of ourselves and managing in, in between all of this. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I did the best that I could. I wore gloves. I had a mask on. I changed out of all my clothes. I took a cab. I did not take, I mean, I took an Uber because I did not want to take a New York City cab, nor did I want to go into the subway. So I took the Uber back and forth, and this is what I needed to do for my own self-care. Yeah, absolutely. Advocating for yourself. I need this right now. Mm. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. What about, I mean, it's interesting in this discussion of like becoming an emergency, right? Because you've been through that so many times where you've been brushed aside. You know, you told us this story about the doctor who said you looked great, even though he had your stack of papers, you know, a foot high um, for your medical record. What about these experiences? Do you have any particular memories that you could share with us that aren't too painful for you to regurgitate? But, you know experiences you had where you knew something was up, you looked fine on the outside and no one would believe you. The gastroparesis, the constipation. Oh my God. And, and you heard it. It took four years to diagnose the damn disease. No one would listen to me for the life of me. I, you know, I went to two male motility doctors last year um, at two different hospital systems in New York, Cornell, NYU. They just did not hear me. I would call and be like, I haven't gone in a whole day. Like, oh, whatever. And I wouldn't even get a response. And I'm like, when is the gastric emptying study test? Three months from now. I'm like, how is this? Like, listen to me. Hear me. This is this is so inappropriate. You need to get me in sooner. What's going on with me? Oh, just keep taking Miralax. Oh, you know what? Add milk of magnesia. It's not cutting it. And yeah. then I would get like, and these are not long-term solutions. No, they're not. And then they would act annoyed with me that I'm calling too much. And I'm like, look, I am not that patient. If you would give me proper solutions, you know, and I should not have to keep calling you in order to get the care that I need. You know, mm-hmm. this, this should be smoother than that. I know, I know how this healthcare system works 
And I know that when it works well, you can get things done sooner rather than later. It doesn't have to take three months to get a procedure done or a study done. It's, I know that by now. And so it was very, very frustrating to me that nobody was believing me because I had an ostomy, like you said earlier. So you have Crohn's and the gastroparesis. Aren't those two opposite things? Nobody would believe me that I was constipated with an ostomy and no colon. And then finally, they were like, you probably have a stricture. So they're looking for a stricture this whole time with doing skulls. Yeah, so they didn't even do a test. They just conjectured? Yeah, they, mm. you probably have a stricture. I'm like, okay, so do something about it then. Find it. Oh, you probably have scar tissue that's blocking stool from passing. Find it. So, so find it and remove it. Like, why is this like an ongoing discussion? Yeah. As far as surgery goes, that's the problem. But like, okay, I have gastroparesis. Fine. But like, how did it get this bad? Well, let's dig into that a little bit. You know, we talked about these layers in your experience, you know, and we've, we've touched on the fact that you're a racial, ethnic and cultural minority woman living with a stigmatized condition within your culture and within ours. Right. But what is it like having that experience, but then also seeing that experience reflected so poorly by our medical system where you're experiencing medical bias on every single level because of it. Every single level. That's, you know, if, if I talk about this, I think I would have to say, first of all, I don't think they realize how educated I was on my condition. Um, I think there's always the shock that I see in doctors when I speak to them in an educated manner about my Crohn's. And they're like, wait, you like, almost like, you know that, you know that language, like, you know, that terminology that like I've been sick for 20 years. So like, if I don't know it by now, I, I literally read studies. That's what I do. When you have such a complicated case of Crohn's, you want to be abreast of the latest cutting edge information. And so I have started to get that respect from some of my doctors now. I've switched a lot of my care over to women doctors, to be completely honest with you, since 2016. My Mayo Clinic doctor and my GI at Mount Sinai, both males, but they absolutely respect that I am proactive and very well informed about my conditions. So I have had to sort of engineer the the physicians that I see to, to be ones that who respect my level of knowledge, treat me like a peer treat me like they can speak to me and tell me like it is how it is. And that's what I need right now. One of the things I've learned is the female doctors hear you. At least for me, the ones that I've mostly switched to have heard me. Um, my female GI last, you know, she was hearing me, but when it came to the gastroparesis, she was not. So, you know, I, I have to say, and I can't emphasize this enough is you have to find someone who can really, really listen to your symptoms and not just listen to them, but do something about them. Do you Whether, think your your whole experience would have been different if you'd been a white man? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's like a foregone conclusion at this point. We have the statistics. I don't even need to ask this question, but I ask it for a reason. <laughs> and I'm glad you're actually asking me this because no one's actually openly asked me that before. Um how would it have been different? I think I would have gotten treated with biologics much sooner. I think that I may not have had this many surgeries. I think my disease, my Crohn's disease may not have gotten this bad. 
I really don't. I don't think I would have had all these surgeries, tried all these medications, and that my life wouldn't be quite as disabled as it's been had I been treated to a target very early on. And I do think as a white male, they would have listened to me. Yeah. What about your family and and extended family at this point too? Because we know that, you know, you're living with this condition that's highly stigmatized. Are they all like fully apprised of the developments in, in your medical chart? You know, is, are you and your mom sharing or are they even interested? Like, what does that look like? That's a really good question. Um, what does it look like um, to have all these diagnoses in my culture? It's honestly very much taboo for me to even open my mouth and say that I have anything bigger than a small s- stomach ailment. In fact, when I came out with my story um, just a little over two years ago through the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, I got so many phone calls after that story hit social media. And let me just tell you, it was social suicide for me to come out with my story because it was just like, wait, you know, we thought you just had a small stomach ailment and then I wouldn't hear from those people again. It's just people just kept falling off. Some of my closest friends disappeared when I started my advocacy work. And, you know, there's one other thing I need to add to this is sometimes people want to be there when you're down, but they can't handle when you start to come up and speak up for yourself. So, you know, and I respect that. I understand, you know, um, but at the same time, it's sometimes when you're building yourself back up is when you really need people to. And so it was a really lonely place when I first started to advocate um, and started to create awareness. It's like, Tina, what are you doing? Like, this is not something we talk about. There's even a phrase, um, and this is an Asian cultural phrase. In, 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 in Hindi and in Urdu, the phrase is lo kya kenge, which means what are people going to say? What are people going to think? And um, I, I know in like the Chinese and some of the Asian languages, they have similar phrases. Don't say that because what are people going to think? That's what that question means is what are people going to think if you open your mouth and expose a flaw, expose that you have a disease, better just keep it under wraps. So people often get married in a lot of these cultures without disclosing that they have an ailment. And you're pretty much married to that person not knowing. And it's, it's, to me, that's wrong on so many levels. That's and it manipulative. Was one of the first, yeah. Absolutely. It was one of the first things I had to tell Anand when we started dating. I think I told him within the first month of us dating, and I told his parents the first time I met them. So it's just, like, it doesn't sit well with me when these kinds of things happen. And just seeing around the world, um, having done some of this advocacy work now for a couple of years, Um, I get a lot of messages from not just Asia, but Latin America and even parts of Africa and even the Western world, of course, you know, all over Europe and Australia. And it's just like, Tina, like, you know, like you've exposed this huge cultural sort of stigma around having such a stigmatized disease, but not just that, like I get messages from men and women that are different. Men can be more accepted. Whereas women with a flaw like this, a flaw, quote unquote, like this. Not a um, flaw, it's just who you are. 
just who you are. But in the, in, in a lot of cultures, it's considered a flaw, which is unfair to us. So, um, I get a lot of messages that say, you know, thank you for talking about this. This kind of awareness isn't here. How do we do this over here? And am I going to lose my family and friends if I do this? And I'm like, yeah, probably. And it's, it's one of those things that I needed to do. I needed to do to, and I alluded to this earlier is, you know, I am so fortunate to be in this country and have survived. Um, even though the fact that you even have to say that is the unfortunate thing, isn't it? You shouldn't have to feel lucky to survive in this country. And that's the fundamental issue at play here. Even though there might have been medical malpractice, um, you know, might have been. I think it sounds like there definitely has been more than once. All these sort of issues, I've survived all of this 100%, Lauren. And it's not just survived, it's like I know patients in some of these other countries whose surgeries are botched and can never be fixed. And I get pictures sent to me and thank you notes sent to me and like, how do we do this? But not just that. It's just like, I finally found someone else like me online because they can't talk about it. Yeah. Plus or ostomy bag. I got a message today from a 23 year old woman in a part of India and she has colorectal cancer and she was given a colostomy and guess what? Her parents told her she can't get married. This Mm, has been her life. And she knows nobody with a colostomy. And she's like, thank you for doing this. And can we be friends? Because I don't Mm. know anybody. And for you, I guess it's also like those people who maybe can't handle it. Well, you have a whole new community of people who can handle it because they're going through similar things. So I made a whole bunch of new friends, whether they're advocates, whether they're patients, people who get it. Um, as a result of my journey. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy that I can make that sort of difference. But yeah, no, it's really heartbreaking to hear some of these stories from abroad, too, because it heightens sort of what I've been through, too. And I'm sure a lot of the the PTSD associated with your experiences, too. I mean, just to swing back around also to the mental health aspect of this, because you touched on earlier how you experienced suicidal ideation, you know, in the midst of all of this confusion about diagnosis and surgeries. How about managing that mental health aspect and the stigmatization culturally with that too? 100%. I'm so glad you brought up the mental health aspect. Um, Very early on when uh, in 2008, when my disease started to get very severe, my mom actually put me in therapy and it was the best thing ever. And she started to put me in support groups. She'd be like, no, we have to go into the city today, Tina. Schedule your appointment for this time so that I can take you to this ostomy support group. She's like, you need this at the time. And, you know, even though my mom and I have had our differences culturally about the ostomy or how to treat this disease, she really pushed for my mental health um, to make sure. And as you heard about, especially with the suicidal ideation, how she picked up the phone and got that taken care of right away with Mayo Clinic, it's just, she really, really pushed to make sure I was being taken care of emotionally through all of this because she knew how hard it was seeing my father go through it, having um, been widowed at the age of 27 when my father passed away. So it's, 
you know, I really look up to her for that and for many other things. But mental health has been a priority for me side by side with the physical health concerns. So um, I started doing therapy in 2008. I am still in therapy um, all these years later, 12 years later. And uh, not just that, um, in 2016, I started seeing a psychiatrist in the event, you know, I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Um, Not so much depression. I think I've had bouts of depression, especially at my sickest points, during which time they would try to prescribe me antidepressants. So she got involved in the picture um, when uh, when things got, uh, when I started to have complications with gastroparesis and other sort of issues around my Crohn's and pelvic pain. So that's when my psychiatrist got involved. But before that, my GI was trying to prescribe antidepressants. And I think it's very important to understand that while a gastroenterologist and other specialists can really handle the physical health aspects, it's really important to get a psychiatrist involved to really properly evaluate you. I had them mm-hmm. evaluate me in the hospital, but it's not the same thing to have regular follow-up. Absolutely. That's really key. And I'm glad that you bring that up too. And it's wonderful that you're able to speak to the experiences you've had, even though you're not totally on the other side, yeah. what you've gained in perspective and where you are emotionally are a 180 compared to 2008. 100%. And I will say um, this also, I think being out with my story, um, because this is a closet that I've had to come out of literally (laughs) um, and figuratively, but being out with my story has actually helped me cope better. And it's something that my therapist actually encouraged very much because being in the closet was just too emotionally suppressing and it felt suffocating for me on so many levels. And now, even though um, my friend circle has changed, even though, um, you know, people might be like, what the heck are you doing? And I might not have the support of some people in my community. That's fine. What I know is in my heart of hearts, I'm doing the right thing and what I need to do to keep myself happy and to help the world. So tell us a little bit more about Own Your Crowns. You started this in 2016? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Um, I started Own Your Crowns in 2018. 2018. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about what's happened since you've launched the blog. I mean, there have been awards, there have been appearances. So tell us about how that's developed and enriched your life. Sure, sure. Um, so I, it, it kind of just happened uh, on your Crohn's, honestly. It was a name that I was thinking of since 2014. Um, I honestly wanted to get into advocacy work for a good four or five years before I actually did it. And um, the reason why is because I, ha- I had been through so many twists and turns in my journey, and I wanted to talk about them, and I really wanted to help people. I was in no place in 2014 to do that, not just physically. Um, I wasn't ready to sort of um, expose myself um, and provide that kind of vulnerability to, to the world in terms of what I had gone through. Um, I hadn't fully digested or comprehended um, what had happened to me at that point. So what had happened in 2014 was I started talking to Anand about it. And he was like, oh, no, 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 Tina. My parents 
our families, it's, it's going to be a disaster if you do this. And I was like, okay, maybe down the line. And he's like, we'll see. And, um, in 2016, you know, after I had come into remission and I started to run some support groups in New York City, a women's support group specifically for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And during that time, I saw how many women are living full lives, even with this disease. Yes, not as extensive of disease as me, fine, but they had fruitful relationships and they weren't afraid of having relationships or um, they weren't chastised for being sick all the time. And I was just like, it was like a whole new world had opened up to me. And I was like, wait, why am I not treated this way? It was like eye opening for me. And so I started to write some articles about my experience. I didn't share them on social media. I didn't have a blog at that time. And then I sort of went back under the covers. <laughs> but um, in 2017, late 2017, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation asked me to be their adult honored hero for their New York City walk, uh, their Take Steps walk uh, in, in 2018. So they asked for my story and to interview me and they were saying they were going to release this on social media. And I was like, Oh, all right. It was released and honestly got such a huge response that I even had like reporters and stuff reach out. And then that's how I started to speak and write. And I remember one of the publications said, well, if you want to share this article, you, you can share it on your blog. I was like, I don't have a blog. And they're like, okay, well, you can create one. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how Own Your Crohn's happened. Um, I was like, okay, I guess it's time to create a blog now. (laughs) So when you also realize that your story was inspiring so many other people. Yeah, yeah. And I think I was like, okay, now the time is right. So that's when I started to get um, some freelance gigs to write and to speak. And it's only sort of grown over the last couple of years, whether it's by attending patient conferences, by continuing to do some volunteer work for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, or speaking for the American Gastroenterological Association. Um, I work with different nonprofits, the United Ostomy Association, National Alliance for Caregiving. There's a lot of different nonprofits I work with. I work with biotech um, and to do certain freelance arrangements, most of which include talking about my disease to explain to um, the company and the staff really what this is like to live with so that they can understand what we go through, do a lot of that kind of work. Um, and also uh, do a lot of social media advocacy just on my own. Um, to create that awareness sometimes for companies, but also sometimes just on my own sort of blog to put my story out. I also highlight, um, different people on my blog, um, sometimes from different countries, uh, to sort of normalize the talk around ostomies or fistulas or Crohn's disease in general, or also ulcerative colitis or J pouches in general, and what life is like in other countries to live with this so that people can feel like, you know what, we're, we're not freaks, we're normal people, you know, we deserve to be loved and respected too. So I want to continue to do that on my blog is highlight different stories, highlight different aspects of my own story to really help normalize rhetoric around this disease. Yeah, I think that's so beautifully said. So we're going to sort of slide into the tail end of the interview now. And I like to wrap up with a couple of top three lists, as you may know. And I'm wondering, given all this experience you have and are continuing to go through, 
what your top three tips might be for someone who's in this perhaps IBD, but chronic illness world, living with invisible chronic illness. What would you recommend to someone who's entering that life and new to it? I think, um, first of all, and this is going back to a conversation around mental health, get a mental health provider on board, get good recommendations, shop around if you need to, because the relationship has to be right with any kind of provider. So number one, get a mental health provider on board. Um, number two, make sure the right doctor is taking care of you. Sometimes that can change over a few years and then you need to switch to doctors again. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. We all evolve. Our cases evolve. Sometimes we need a second pair of eyes on our intestines or on whatever diseased body part we might have to make a call. Um, so second opinions are very important, but also it's okay to switch doctors if you need to do so at this time. And I would say um, number three, and this is really, really important to me, is a lot of times with their diseases, we can be um, you know, agitated and take it out on our caregivers. Always show love and respect to your caregivers. It's really, really hard on them. And, and to you. Everyone yeah. deserves it, right? It's really hard on us. Um, and I think this is a journey for all of us, whoever our caregivers are, whoever the patient is. And remember, they're in it with you. So show them that love and respect and demand that love and respect of them as well. Mm, really beautifully said. So the last top three list, this is kind of a fun one. And you've been to Helen back multiple times and we've gone through the bad stuff. I want to get into the good stuff as we wrap this up. So what are top three things in your life that give you unbridled joy? So these are things that despite lifestyle adjustments, you're unwilling to compromise on. Could be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, maybe comfort activities, but three things that fill your heart up. Okay. So number one, I will say is my advocacy work. Um, I think making a difference in people's lives has made a huge difference in mine. It's allowed me to take the lemons of my own life and make lemonade out of them. And so I think that even though I've gotten so much pushback um, with my advocacy work, it is not just a guilty pleasure. It's a way of life for me at this point in time. And I need to do it for myself and for my community. Number two. Um, and this is a really very tough one at this time because of the pandemic that we're living through. Um, I really enjoy traveling. And I think that's one of the things that I picked up again. Um, after my disease started to remit for the first time in nine years, I went to an international destination and I went to my favorite country, Spain. So um, I'm fluent in Spanish and uh, it was my major in college and I really love their culture. So really enjoy traveling, um, visiting new sites and getting to know new cultures and people um, and understanding them and understanding their psychology and how things work. So, you know, it's something I hope to pick up again 
no matter how long it takes to get through this pandemic, I hope I can pick that up again. And I'm glad I got my fill right before the pandemic. We had gone to Vienna. I was invited to a conference there. So um, I really hope that that's something that's going to happen sooner rather than later. Because I have a couple in- invitations in the fall too. Um, Lovely. Yeah. And three, and this is kind of a difficult one, a really difficult one given my disease. I have this really love-hate relationship with food, but it's really a love one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really love food. And it's, I've worked around sort of my illness, my illnesses really for many years with food to make it in a way that's tasty and still, you know, satisfactory in terms of my gut. So, and digestible. And I think it's, I've had to be very creative, whether it's been my mom involved um, in helping me get that nutrition and making things taste good, even though I can't eat spicy because spicy is a huge thing in my culture. Um, So I think finding novel ways to still eat good, delicious food with all these GI issues I have is definitely one of my pleasures in life. I suppose now's a good time to be experimenting in the kitchen too. <laughs> I definitely have been. Yes. <laughs> well, Tina, can you tell everyone where they can find you and your blog online? Yeah, sure. Um, you can find my blog at ownyourcrones.com. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Own Your Crones. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Tina Swaniomprakash. Thank you all for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Tina. It's been such an honor to hear more of your story and to be able to give you a platform to speak more about it. It's so important that we gain these perspectives beyond our own experiences, which is so much of what we've been talking about today. And I I really commend you for coming out of the closet. Um, It's just a a gift to have your story in the world. So thank you for sharing it. I really appreciate you saying that, Lauren. Also for highlighting certain aspects of my journey that, you know, between the bias and the malpractice, it's been a really tough journey. And I think we need to give more of a voice to these kinds of aspects of how women and and women of color are treated in the medical system. Absolutely. That's so much the mission (laughs) of the show at this point, you know, and I, I, I'm very glad that there are advocates like you who are out there who are enabling us to see past the BS stories that we're told um, and see what's actually going on and, and be able to, if we can identify what's happening systemically, we can start to change it. So um very excited to see what continues to grow out of this work. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lauren. This is really great. I really appreciate it. Same. That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.